Exodus 32, verses 1 through 9, these are God's words. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf, and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. It's important and helpful for us to notice what led to this great sin by Aaron and by the people, the church with him. And that was that they could no longer see the one whom God had appointed to lead them. Uh, Hebrews describes the church in two phases. One, as being under Moses, who is a servant in the house. The other, as being under Jesus, who is a son over the house. And almost at the very beginning of this church, Moses was up on the mountain where they couldn't see him and where... He was gone long enough that uh, they decided uh, to have church, as it were, of their own accord. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, they gather together to Aaron, they make their proposal, and they say, For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, we have a very similar problem, don't we? Or maybe not a problem, we are in a similar situation. We do not see the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church on earth. Uh, As Jesus himself told the apostles in John 20, verse 29, uh, the blessed are they who, having seen, believed. Uh, How much more blessed are those who, not having seen, would believe in the Lord Jesus. Or as uh, Peter says by the Spirit, not having seen him, we love him. And, of course, Peter is talking on behalf of the church at that point because he actually had seen him. Uh, And yet we believe in him whom we do not see. We love him whom we do not see. This is the principle of faith. We walk by certainty of what God has said. We are more sure of the reality that is spoken to us and recorded for us in the scriptures than we are of what we can see. We must not walk by sight. It is walking by sight that leads the nation of Israel here, or results in, it's their sinfulness that leads them, uh, 
There's walking by sight that is the mechanism by which their sinfulness leads them into worshiping in the manner that seems best to them, in a manner that God hates, in a manner that, as we'll see in the next passage, he hates so much that he is ready to burn them up entirely in his wrath, reduce the number of his people back to one, and start over with Moses. And so we must live by faith. We must walk by faith. There's a sense in which this is an even greater danger to us now. Biblical worship in the New Testament has lost much of what was visible and accessible by our senses, perceptible by our senses in the Old Testament. There's no designated physical structure, no tabernacle or temple, physical tabernacle or temple that we can see. There's no consecrated furniture. There are no divine decorations. There are no sacrifices, no anointings, no candles and candlelight, no incense burning, no designated liturgy, no annual feasts or days, no priestly choirs or musicians. And as you hear those things, you probably realize These are the very things that so many have added back into the worship of God. Forgetting about Jesus Christ, who is now not on Mount Sinai, but on Mount Zion. As for this Jesus, we do not know what has become of him. He's not visible to us. And so uh, there's the temptation to take that which is perceptible to the senses that God has removed so that we might instead worship through Christ, that we might have him in his place in our worship, not obscured and hidden from our eyes by uh, special structures and special furniture and decorations and sacrifices, the mass, and anointing ceremonies and um, candles and candlelight and burning incense and Uh, and uh, very formal forward liturgy and annual feasts and annual days and choirs and musicians, all of the things that God removed so that worship would be by faith, led by Christ, in Christ, joined to Christ, whom we perceive by the word, even the sacraments that he has given us are much less for outward glory and perceptibility. Just all you need for all of the sacraments, if you're going to have them all in one service, a loaf of bread, a flask of wine, a flask of water, a bite of bread and a sip of wine, the pouring out of a little bit of water. There's much less visible or outward glory in biblical worship this side of the cross. There's more fullness and there's more efficacy. Because there is Christ. And so right at the beginning of our passage, we see this is extremely relevant to us, isn't it? This isn't just some obscure, disconnected episode in the history of Israel that we read and we take it as historical information or we shrug our shoulders and think, how does this apply to us? We are almost in this situation more than they were. Jesus has gone higher. He is less visible. He's been gone longer. And so the temptations to fall into the same sin are very strong. 
having to worship by faith is the challenge, is the essence of Christian worship. Even those who are regenerated only know Christ by the Holy Spirit's blessing and sustaining our faith, our conviction of what his word says, so that we are convinced of what we don't see. And we're sure of some things that aren't don't even yet exist. We're led in worship by Jesus from heaven. Those who are not regenerated, those who don't have any faith, then the substance of Christian worship isn't perceptible to them. Without faith they may come, they may have the deeds of their hearts exposed by the word, but largely the worship itself should be unintelligible to them. These people are nuts. There's nothing to it. There's nothing here. The unbeliever should think. Especially the gospel hypocrite. The falsely called Christian should think. As they come into a biblical worship service. And they're right. There is nothing there. Well, there's people there who are united to Christ. They are the body. They are the temple. There is the word of God which is something except for to him because he lacks spiritual life and faith is nothing. But the worship is in heaven where we are seated with Christ, where we are led by him, where he says, Behold I and the children whom you have given me, where he declares his father's name to his brethren, where he sings God's praise in the midst of the assembly, where he speaks. And the warning is, See that you do not refuse him who speaks from heaven. And so this is the real question in worship, faith versus sight. And it's an important question because man's wisdom is folly. Aaron's plan has an appearance of wisdom. He says, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. He decides to involve the entire community in sacrificial giving. He enlists husbands and fathers to lead their households in their own houses' participation in the sacrificial giving of the entire community. He directs them to give that which is their very best, the gold. And specifically earrings, which we've already seen in chapter 21 and verse 6, were symbolic of devotion and dedication, a commitment that would not be broken you can see the wheels turning. God is the one to whom our commitment cannot be broken. We have these visible representations of our belonging to our household, but we need a visible representation of our belonging to God. Even God in heaven and God on the mountain with Moses was accommodating the weakness of faith. He had been giving Moses all this time that took so long that they wondered about it, instruction for a tabernacle that had a lot of visible representation of God's commitment to them, God's grace to them, God's presence with them, God's forgiveness of them, God's consecration of them. He being Yahweh who sanctifies Israel. And so what Aaron gives them, what he comes up with here in Verse 2, looks so wise, so wonderful. 
looks. In reality, it's so wicked, isn't it? When man comes up with his own way of worship, he usually does not first come up with children's church and laughing fits and rock bands and things that you can look at and say, that's obviously not worship. How ridiculous. He usually comes up with things that have an appearance of wisdom and spiritual meaning. And yet man's wisdom is folly. We might think that the problem is um, that they're worshiping someone other than Yahweh, but uh, since we uh, read Yahweh where you see the word represented by all all caps as it is at the end of verse 5, you could hear it in the reading, couldn't you? Tomorrow is a feast of Yahweh. They were celebrating a great moment of redemption. God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 4, and it's God singular, even though it's uh, it's Elohim, which has a plural form, but that's how God appears. It is the, the one God, Yahweh, whom they are claiming to worship. Celebrating the great act of his salvation so far. Analogous practices continue today in the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Annual celebration days of his works of salvation are invented in his name. Visible traditions grow up around them. And this wasn't invented by some obscure member of some tribe in the nation of Israel. This was instructed by the high priest, the one whom God had just given Moses on the mountain instructions about how to ordain him, the high priest. To put it in historical context, Aaron was the Pope of Israel. And boy, did he anachronistically fulfill that title. It was indeed this use of a calf, this announcement God who brought you up out of the land of Israel, this institution of a feast unto Yahweh, all of this is repeated by Jeroboam the first, first Kings twelve twenty eight. After all that had been done, the establishing of the kingdom, the establishing of a new kingdom in the north, tearing the the nation or most of the nation away from the house of David. There are other things that he could have declared, but he uses this line from Exodus 32 to show how long-standing worship tradition of the celebration of God's redemption it was. Well, it stood for a long time further after Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, 2 Kings 17, verses 20 to 23, explaining, writing the epitaph, the Words on the gravestone of Israel when it has been destroyed, the northern kingdom, says they never departed from what Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, led them in. But really, they never departed from what Aaron, the brother of Moses and the high priest of Israel, led them in. Man's 
wisdom is folly. Even the best seeming worship traditions, even initiated by the highest clergy and the nearest to God in church history, are idolatry, are folly. Well, not only is man's wisdom folly, but self-directed worship leads to self-indulgent worship. They rise early the next day, verse 6, and they get the religious stuff out of the way. They rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and offered pe- and brought peace offerings. Probably while they were offering the, the offerings, there were those of them who had spiritual sensibilities and uh, and were very sincere, thinking about, yes, we need forgiveness for our sins. There's a substitute, there's a sacrifice, there's blood. Yes, we have fellowship with God through the sacrifice, the peace offerings. And, but they get their religiosity out of the way. And once their consciences are quieted and uh, their spiritual sensibilities are satisfied, they can finally get to what they really want to do. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Is it any different now? On the holidays where if you have a service that morning, you you rise up early in the morning and you get the religious stuff out of the way and then you go have the great big meal, the feast, and then you have all of the entertainments. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, when the apostle by the Spirit is writing about the things that happened to Israel and they were destroyed in their unbelief, But he says, those were written down for our instructions, he says in 1 Corinthians 10. The one line from this incident that he selects as an example is, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You see, there's a self-indulgence that wants to enjoy things that God, God actually created food and drink to be enjoyable. And there are things like fellowship and dancing and not what most of us consider dancing now, but there are there are things that are appropriate ways to enjoy God's goodness, but we're to enjoy him in those things. But if it's not him himself that we enjoy, even in our worship, what is going to restrain our self-indulgence when it comes to enjoying the rest of his creation, the rest of his good gifts? And so you see how they came up with Worship that would make them feel a certain way and satisfy certain needs. And it was focused on what they felt they needed. And that goes hand in hand with a life that is really just self-indulgence. You can give lip service to God being the good giver of all things. Thing, sing like, um, all things bright and beautiful. This is my father's world. uh, But you're really just a self-indulgent person finding religious words to plaster onto your self-indulgence. Self-directed worship leads to self-indulgent worship. You know, we're really in danger of this when we don't feel like going down there on the Lord's day. God the Son became a man. He secured our salvation. He, He... died on the cross, rose again from the dead. He's about to lead from heaven, worship in the assemblies on earth. He's given us the means by which he personally does that. 
we get to come and enjoy union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and that worship that has been facilitated and consecrated unto God by what Jesus has done. They say, yeah, but it doesn't feel as good as I want it to. And I don't like the the feelings that I get when I have to gather with those people. And I don't get anything out of the preaching. And the songs are strange. And, and, and. And we walk by sight, not by faith. And then having had self-indulgent thoughts of God's worship, are we surprised then when we come into the rest of our lives and we find it almost impossible to deal with our self-indulgent tendencies in the rest of life. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And God hates it. God hates that worship. It's not just the substance of the response in verse 7, but the wording of the response in verse 7 is pretty shocking, isn't it? Yahweh said to Moses, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They're down there saying that they are holding a worship service to the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He basically says they have brought themselves to where they are. You brought them to where they are. This is more, this is closer to your character, Moses, than it is to theirs. Your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. You see, God's salvation, God's way, is not just a way of being forgiven. It's a path that that has its conclusion in perfect holiness forever and enjoyment of him forever. Being delivered from Egypt was to be the start of a path that has its conclusion in being joined to Yahweh and walking in his ways. And so he basically disowns Israel. says, your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. When Moses intercedes for Israel, as the Lord is going to tell him not to, but he does anyway, and we'll get to that. There's good reason for it. He has good Bible reasons for it. When Moses intercedes for Israel, he's going to turn that language back around. He's going to know you're your people, and you brought them out. But the wording of verse 7, doesn't it correspond to the worship of verses 1 through 6? When we worship the way we want to, we say, we are our own God who want our own way to our own end. It is a despising of God's glory, a rejection of him. And although we won't admit that it's a rejection of him as Savior, you can't have God in partial ways, can you? So if you reject his divine prerogative to be the one who comes up with how to worship, then you're putting yourself in the place of God. If we come up with our own way to worship, we put ourselves in his place, we may still be using his name, like Aaron did, tomorrow is a feast of Yahweh. 
when in reality God has removed his name from us. Your people, Moses, whom you brought up. If we will not have him as the only inventor of worship, then we will not have him as our identity, his people, or our redeemer, whom he saved. The reality will be that we are our own people, not his. The Lord summarizes what they have done, turned quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and he gives Moses some of the details. Moses isn't privy to the details. But then he gives a very sobering assessment in verse 9. Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. He doesn't say, this is a new, strange development. He says, what has come out of them at the bottom of this mountain to be their own God and serve their own purposes because they want to worship in their own way and not have me at all. This is actually indicative of what's really in their hearts. It's not an honest mistake. It's not something about which you can say, like we always do, when out of the overflow of our health, mouth, the heart speaks. You say, oh, I didn't mean it. That's not me. No, it is. It's more you than the you that you're able to make appear, usually. So let us learn to accuse ourselves properly. When we discover that something we used to think was okay is actually idolatrous. When something that meant so much to us so many times that we discover from the Bible that wasn't invented by God. It was invented by men. And maybe even God has done us much good in it. But let us be willing to give up our stubborn hearts. Lest what God says in verse 9 end up being truth of us that we show ourselves to be a stiff-necked people. Because when we see and hear that God did not invent it, instead of repenting and falling on our face before him and pleading that for the sake of his name, he would forgive us that we have done this all our lives long and restore us to plain biblical worship, simple biblical worship. What is the usual reaction? Not that. The usual reaction is to come up with clever-sounding theological arguments for why you can keep doing the stuff that means so much to you. And what is that if not, I have seen this people, and indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. The harder you pull on them to go in the right direction, the stronger that neck gets. It's an image drawn from the way a mule responds. What does God say? He says, be not like senseless horse or mule. Who have to, by pain, be pulled out of their wrong way. But receive instruction that the words of God would overrule our idolatry. Mercifully, New Testament worship is led by Christ from heaven. And it's simple on earth precisely so that he wouldn't be 
we wouldn't be distracted from him. But by his word, read and sung and prayed and preached and heard by simple sacraments that are very unimpressive in the visible, tangible actions that are done, but direct us instead to an an invisible, heavenly, infinitely impressive reality. God has given us worship that is designed by its simplicity to address the very weakness of our hearts that this passage exposes. As for this Jesus, we may have him only by faith for now. May God the Spirit increase that faith even by blessing this portion of his word to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, our Lord Jesus, to be the one who is the leader of your church, who is not merely a faithful servant in the house, but the Son, the Heir, the Glorious One, and the Perfectly Righteous One, who is over your house. And we pray that you would deliver us from self-indulgence of life, in part and especially by delivering us from self-indulgence in worship. And grant to us to walk and live and worship by faith and not by sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.